0: All right, you ready? Yeah, yeah. All right, me too. Hey, each year as a family, our family, the Coes, we do something that we, we do something intentionally where we try to grow. So one year, we realized that maybe we had purchased a lot of clothes. So we didn't buy any clothes for a year. That was surprisingly difficult to me. I don't think I buy a lot of clothes. I don't walk past stores and go, "Ooh, I got to go in there. They're not electronic. They don't plug in. I have no interest. And yet, I found it was surprising how many clothes I did purchase because I realized that I couldn't. Or, or the year that we did what we called tea-free days, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we didn't use electronics for any kind of entertainment. So we didn't watch movies, we didn't watch shows, we didn't play video games, we didn't do anything. Instead, we took that time and we had it as a family where we we did some puzzles, we read books, we played games, we did all kinds of other stuff just to help us make sure that we weren't using things too much inappropriately. But one of the best things that I've ever done about 10 or 11 years ago, I made a commitment personally to not turn off the light to the house, whether our bedroom or not turn off that last light and close my eyes and go to sleep until I had spent some time in the scriptures. I had read the scriptures regularly before that, but not on a daily basis, and I didn't have a daily personal habit. Some days were really easy. I got up, I made some coffee, I had my Bible, it was awesome. Other days, things happened, it was a scramble, it was just a lot harder, and so I found myself reading at night, or even in bed, I would grab my Bible, and I would spend some time reading, and then I'd have to like hold my eye open to stay awake. But that commitment for that year developed in me a personal habit that has continued on to this day, and I have read through it. I use a reading plan because if I don't have a plan, it's not gonna happen. And so I took a reading plan, I've done different plans, I've read different translations, and I've read with a different focus many years. One year I read and I focused on the questions in the Bible. Did you know that roughly 10% of the verses in the Bible contain a question? Questions are important. Or there was the year that I read and I focused on situations, statements, or uh, portions of Scripture that were emotional in one way or another. Not necessarily negative emotion, not positive, just emotional. And I highlighted all that with a certain color. It was fascinating as God began to show me different things. And now, before, before you jump ahead and you assume that you think I'm going to tell you you need to commit to one thing or another and, hey, Happy New Year's, that, I want to pause because that's not what this is about. This is not about getting some kind of coerced commitment out of you. It's not about a guilt trip, it's not anything like that. What this is, is a realization for me As I was reading recently, last month, actually, I was reading through Acts, and in Acts 17 and 18, certain words started to jump out at me, and and they just captured me. I underlined them, I circled them, and I couldn't get them out of my mind. And so this morning, this morning isn't about a commitment from you to do one thing or another. What it is is a challenge that God has challenged me with and that I feel strongly about. And I want to invite you into what God has shown to me. And so we're going to look at Acts 17 and 18, but before we do that, a little bit of background. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They had been flogged and they were imprisoned. And that night, there was an earthquake. The doors flew open. The chains fell off. There was a miraculous earthquake, and they could have run free, but they didn't. They remained where they were. And when the jailer realized what had happened, he almost killed himself, but Paul called out to him and said, don't, we're all still here. That surprised the jailer so much that he asked them, He asked them what was so different about them and Paul shared the gospel with him and the jailer and his entire family became believers that night. The next day, the officials realized that they had illegally flogged and imprisoned a Roman citizen. They were embarrassed and so they they told Paul, hey, you should just kind of leave, like go out the back door. And Paul said, oh no, you put me in here publicly, you should escort me out of town. And so they did to get rid of him. They escorted him out of town and Paul and Silas left and they went to Thessalonica, which is roughly 100 miles away. And that's where we pick up the story because Paul went to the synagogue when he got to Thessalonica. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 together. After they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, I actually said that correctly, earlier. And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So Paul goes to Thessalonica which is right up here in this little alcove kind of thing. He came from Philippi which is a little bit off the map just to the northeast about 100 miles away through the mountain. And when he gets to Thessalonica he's he's purposeful. He goes to Thessalonica. It's a large city full of trade. It's prosperous. Paul, on his missionary journeys, often targeted large cities and areas of influence because as people would accept the gospel in their daily lives, in their trade or whatever they would do, they would then take the gospel with them. He's strategic about what he does and where he goes. And the first thing he does when he gets to the city is go to the synagogue, and this is a really cool architectural picture of what the synagogue looked like. There were these seats around the outer edges where people of influence and in a higher standing would have been able to sit. And then others who were more common would sit on the floor. But right in the middle here, there was a little platform. That platform was called the Bima. And that's where someone who was presenting something or reading something would go. They would stand on that bima and rise above the crowd, and they would present their ideas. And Paul had a method, he had a strategy. He knew what he was doing. And we know that because, as Luke says, as usual, this is what Paul normally did. He went to the synagogue. He went to where they were reading the scriptures because he so desperately wanted to share Jesus with his countrymen. His heart burned for the Israelites. How do we know that? Well, if we look at Romans 10.1, it's very, very clear. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation within the context. We know that he is talking about Israel. Both the NIV and the CJB translate that, not just them generally, but very specifically the Israelites. And what is it? He wants them to be saved. He wants to share the message of salvation with them. So what is that message? I would be remiss if I didn't mention really what that message is. So, the gospel message, I think, is very well summed up in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, forgive me. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, Paul says in his letter to Corinth, he says, "'Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain.'" And these are the points of the gospel that he shared. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Don't miss that. The gospel is what is most important. There are other things that are incredibly important, but nothing rises to the level of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day also according to the scriptures and that he appeared to cephas then to the 12 this is the message that paul shared with him absolutely everywhere that he went and he began in the synagogue so let's take a look at the approach that paul takes because this this is what jumped out to me how did paul share this what was his method the first thing is that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This Greek word is really important, dialegomai. All right, your turn. Dialegomai. Say it on three. One, two, three. Dialegomai. Excellent. Dialegomai. This is a formal speech. This is something that he would have prepared. Paul didn't show up to Thessalonica and on the Sabbath walk into the synagogue, and then go, hmm, I wonder if I, yep, it's my turn. Okay. He didn't like raise his hand, get called on, walk up there, and then just begin speaking off the top of his head. This is something that he prepared. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Israelites. He knew them. This is a formal speech in a formal setting with formal language. Paul understood his audience. He prepared his remarks, and he was granted an opportunity to stand before them and share with the crowd. He would have considered their perspectives and their experience as he prepared what he was going to share with them. Today, this is really similar to what apologists do. Many well-known apologists today travel around and present prepared remarks. Here's four that I think are notable. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, and they all have different approaches, and they're all very, very good. Ravi Zacharias has an international ministry, and he goes to college campuses, shares prepared remarks, and then does Q&A. Sean McDowell is a professor at Biola at the theological school there. He's written many books and has spoken at many conferences. His focus is to help prepare the next generation to defend their faith. Hilary Morgan Ferrer, who we had here at a family night just a little while ago, uh, she's part of the Mama Bear Apologetics, and they as a group have written a book. It's fantastic. And William Lynn Craig is one of the foremost debaters within this sphere. He will go on and he will debate countless atheists and agnostics, and he, he gives proofs and reasoning for God. And what do these people do that's so important? They They prepare ideas. And what they do is try to show that there is a reasonable foundation foundation and founding for us to believe what we believe. It's not just pie in the sky here, whatever. It's not just a bunch of made up stuff. Instead, there are very good reasons for believing what we believe. And apologists do their part in showing that from the Christian perspective. So Paul's reasoning with his audience is clearly defined, actually, in these two ways. There's, he reasoned with them, and there are two other words that follow. The first is explaining, deanoigo, to explain. He he would explain what they had missed. This literally means to explain something which has been previously hidden or obscure, to reveal to someone the truth that they just had not seen. How many of you, as parents, have you ever accidentally left out a present? Or maybe purposefully, you left a present out and your kids never saw it because they weren't looking for it. When I was in middle school, my parents bought a trampoline. You've seen those boxes, right? They're like this tall and they're huge and they have a picture of a trampoline on the side pretty obvious, unless you're me or my sister or my brother, because they left this box in our garage. And if I remember correctly, they left it actually somewhere near the door that went from the garage into the house. They had it for weeks, maybe a month. We never saw it. We were absolutely shocked Christmas morning to see this gigantic box that had been sitting in front of us the entire time. Has that ever happened to you? Where something is so plain, so obvious, so clear, and you just didn't see it because either you weren't looking for it or you didn't know where to look? You see, Paul is explaining something which had been previously hidden or obscure. Maybe that's because they just didn't understand. Maybe it's because they weren't looking for it. Or maybe they just didn't have the eyes to see. And so Paul's objective was to make clear something that they had not seen before. And this isn't the first time this had happened. In Luke 24, 32, we read about the two men who had traveled on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appeared to them and walked along with them and he explained the scriptures to them as they were walking along and then they invited him to dinner and so he goes to dinner with them. They're sitting down, they're talking about the scriptures and and all these things that had to be fulfilled and they still don't know who he is and then Jesus takes the bread and prays and breaks it and they're like, "Ah, it's you! And he disappears as soon as they realize who he is. Luke 24, 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? They hadn't seen it until Jesus revealed it. And Paul, as one of his strategies, shows up to the synagogue to explain the scriptures. Something that they had failed to see. The second part is to offer a proof. The word here in the Greek, paratithemi, it's just fun to say, paratithemi. It means to establish evidence to show that something is true. You see, in the course of his discussion at the synagogue on the Bema, he would have faced opposition from the Jews. They would have had specific questions and arguments to counter what he was saying. They would have asked for clarification, and he would have carefully prepared for and answered those questions. He would have responded to their objections and demonstrated how his claims were credible. And he would have done this out of his love for them because he wanted so badly, so desperately for them to know the Jesus that he knew. And we should do the same. But Paul's experience, his strategy, it wasn't just limited to spiritual or religious settings. No, in fact, it wasn't limited at all. Paul also took the message to the Areopagus, the Areopagus is in Athens, so Paul traveled from Thessalonica up here all the way down to Athens to where the Areopagus is. He is in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him, and while he's there, he sees all the idols that people were worshiping, and the Bible says that he was deeply distressed. So what does he do? Well, first of all, he, as usual, he goes to the synagogue But then he also goes to the marketplace and he goes to share with anyone who was there. A couple of years ago, Andrea and I were blessed to be able to take a trip to celebrate our anniversary and we went to Athens. We went to Athens and to Rome and Prague and oh my goodness, it was so much fun but it was also so enlightening to walk those hills, to see those places. As we walked around, we literally stumbled onto Mars Hill. We left the hotel room and we just decided to walk to the Acropolis, because it was down the street. I actually ran around it, preparing for a marathon. I mean, Seriously, how cool was that? If you're preparing for a marathon, you go and you run around the Acropolis? That was cool but we went together and we walked toward the Acropolis and we we got to this rocky place and we're climbing around on there and then we go down some steps and turn around and I see this plaque that's just bolted to the rock wall. It was Paul's sermon from Acts 17. We were struck by the landscape. We were struck by even the merchants because as Paul stood there, he saw what everybody was selling. Those guys are, okay, not those exact guys, but there's still guys, they're, they're selling all kinds of things. As you walk down the street, there's booths set up to sell you all kinds of stuff. Most of it is selfie sticks, but there was a lot of other things as well. <laughs> just to the west of Mars Hill, this rocky outcropping, which is right here, just across the street to the west, is this big open field, and On the edge of that open field, there's something called the Orders Bema. I took these pictures when I was there because I was so struck by it. As you look at this field, it seems like the kind of place people could set up booths and sell things, or people could stand on the Bema and share ideas or thoughts or new, new ideas. I think that it's likely that this is actually the site that Paul stood when he delivered the sermon. And I think that for a couple of reasons. One is that Acts 17, 19 says that they brought him to the Areopagus and they asked him to present his ideas for them. If there's any kind of sizable crowd, it would have been very difficult for a crowd to be present or to hear what Paul had to present if he was standing on the rocky outcropping of Mars Hill. But if he was at the Orator's Bema, he could have spoken to thousands, and if they were quiet and attentive, they could have heard him. And the Orator's Bema is set up perfectly, in fact, for this purpose of sharing ideas. Secondly, the Areopagus, while it does refer to a place, also refers to a governing body to a council that met on the hill that oversaw religion and education and the moral behavior of the residents of Athens. So this group of people invited Paul to come and share his ideas with them. Now, you might be asking yourself, does it really matter if Paul was on a rocky outcropping of Mars Hill or was standing on the orator's bima when he delivered the sermon? And on one hand, no, not, not a bit. It's literally right across the street, and it does not change the message that he was sharing in the slightest. It's literally the difference between sharing a message here or walking across to the other side of the stage and sharing the exact same message here. It doesn't, does not change the content. However, it mattered to me because as I walked on those paths and as we saw this area, for me, it helped ground my faith in the reality of the historical event. Does it change my faith if Paul was actually standing on a rocky hill? No. But to see the bima, to see this field, and to, to be able to picture it in my mind helped ground for me and helped me knowing that what I believe is true. You see, apologists, Christians throughout the centuries, we have always held to the fact that what we believe is based on historical reality, that these things actually happened, that they were not just made up. And so when I see this place and when I read Paul's words and know that these were what he said here it helps me. I hope it helps you as well. So let's take a look at what Paul preached to them. We're going to read Acts 17, through 34 together. It's a little bit longer than the last one, but this, this sermon is awesome. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. They were just covering all their bases. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul's strategy in the marketplace is incredibly different from his strategy within the synagogue. Let's take a look at at what he does. First of all, he knows his audience. As I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, Paul carefully observed the culture he was in And that's the first principle for us as well. We must carefully observe the culture that we live in and the people we live among. So what does this look like? I've got a couple of thoughts. Um, Modern poets, for us, we do still have poets, but in our modern age, a lot of times, these are musicians and songwriters. These are the ones making art that we consume. When we listen to music, are we making, are we watching for these connection points like Paul did? He connected what their own poets were saying to the truth of the gospel. Another thing we must do is watch for connecting themes. In entertainment, The greatest story ever told about Jesus and his sacrifice and our redemption, that story, a thread of that, is woven through so much of the entertainment that we enjoy. There's a show that I was watching recently with our two older boys, and I won't name it because I don't want any spoilers. It's more recent. And at the end of the last episode, there was an incredible scene of redemption and sacrifice. And it just struck me. It was powerful. And we ended up talking about it afterwards. But the sacrifice and the redemption that I saw in that show pales in comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus and the redemption that he offers. So I would encourage you, the things you watch the things you talk about with your coworkers the shows and the entertainment those things watch for connecting themes watch for the idols that we worship as well do we have idols here in frisco texas do we have any any temples yeah sometimes the idol is like a, a blue star ah <laughs> oh, sorry uh, and, and they have a temple that's actually just down the tollway. Or, or the idol, it may be. It may be an athlete. It may be a musician. It may be a device that we stare at for untold hours. We all have idols. Are the people around us all have idols? Are we educated? Do we know? Do we observe the culture around us? And do we watch for the themes that connect with the story of the Gospel. Secondly, we must proclaim the truth in love. This is what Paul does. He says, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. We cannot shirk back, we cannot sink back or wait. Proclaiming is important and we must not compromise the truth as we read through Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he didn't compromise anything. He boldly stated the truth, and that made them incredibly uncomfortable, I'm sure, but he did it in such a way as to not shame them. No, he did it in such a way as to invite them to discover the God that they only saw a shadow of and to see him in his glory. Proclaiming the truth in love, we also, we don't diminish our love because God has made every person in his image. We are all image bearers of him. So whether somebody differs from you politically or occupationally or they're a different race or gender, that doesn't mean that we don't love them because we do. And we love them despite their background, despite their experience, despite their past indiscretions. We love them because they bear the image of God. And that's why we proclaim the truth to them. And third, this is really, really important. Their response is not our responsibility. Our job is to plant and water seeds. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says that I planted seeds, and Apollos, his partner in the gospel, Apollos watered them, but it is God that makes it grow. We must never forget this. Our job is to plant and water seeds, and this means that we don't get to take either the blame or the credit. If somebody hears the gospel clearly and they choose to reject it or they do not accept it, sometimes we take the blame on that for ourselves. Oh, if I had only just shared this with them or if I had put that a different way or or maybe if I had, if I had, if I had, that's wrong. Our job is to plant and water seeds. It is God's responsibility to make it grow. And He is faithful. So we cannot take the blame. Neither can we take the credit. How exciting is it when someone does accept the truth of the gospel? They do put their faith and trust in Jesus to forgive them of their sins. It's thrilling to see new life born. But we can't take credit for that either because it's God who makes it grow. It's God who does the work. We get to partner with him in his work of sharing the gospel. It is a huge honor. But we can't take the blame and we can't take the credit. This gospel, it's always going to be every single time. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be misunderstanding. And that's because the gospel contradicts culture in every way, shape, and form. Where culture says, look out for number one. Number one, they're referring to themselves. But the gospel says number one is Jesus. I'm way down on the ladder. Number one is Jesus, and my primary is to serve him and to love others, not to look out for myself. Because if I trust God and I know that he's looking out for me, I don't have to worry about it. But this gospel, it contradicts culture. It contradicts what everybody says. I found this quote as I was studying for this message, and I thought it was absolutely perfect for this morning. Here in this setting, we have a true confrontational with the first century world. Paul might have adapted the cultural forms for those to whom he spoke, but there was no compromise of the gospel message. And that message went against the grain of the most basic beliefs and values of Paul's listeners, just as biblical Christianity contradicts the beliefs and values of modern man today. Is that true? It absolutely is. The gospel message contradicts the modern message. That's why it's so important to share it. After staying in Athens for a time, Paul traveled on to Corinth for the next phase of his missionary journey. We're going to go through this very quickly. He moves from Athens down here just across this little spit of land over to Corinth where we see all of this come together. So Acts eighteen one through 5, after this, he left Athens and went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. We find this to be the case even here today. We associate with people who have the same interests or the same occupation. Paul was the same way. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, as usual, he went to the synagogue and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So he goes to the synagogue, and what does he do? He reasoned with them, which we already looked at, but then he adds something here. He tried to persuade them. The Greek word here is pithol, this literally means to persuade or to convince. There's no ambiguity in this. It's been said that every conversation is persuasion. This was true for Paul. He does everything he possibly can to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. Whether he is giving them apologetic reasons or whether he is sharing a personal story, he wants everyone to know the gospel And the second thing he does is testify. The Greek word here literally means the act of making a declaration on the basis of personal knowledge. He shares from his experience what this is like. And you see, there are some people that we know. They need reasons. There are hurdles and obstacles for them that are very difficult to overcome to coming to faith. Whether it's a Darwinian argument with evolution and scientific ideas, materialistic ideas, or whether it's just that they see that most, a lot of Christians, or maybe they know Christians who say that they're Christians, but they don't live any different, they don't see any noticeable difference, and so there's an obstacle there for them to come to faith because they don't see any noticeable difference. Paul shares from both he gives them reasons, but he also shares his testimony of how Christ has changed him, a personal experience. And we must do both too. We must share. So how has God changed you? How have you grown in your faith? And remember, I'm not, I am not throwing any stones, I promise. This whole message, was what I needed to see. This is simply an invitation into what God is teaching me. And this is what He's teaching me. This is what I'm focusing on this year as I read through the Bible, is how people share both reasons for God and their experience of Him. So what does it look like for us In the 21st century, I've got a couple of ideas just in closing that I want to share with you. First of all is the idea that we need to be people who are predictable. We've just done a study in Daniel 1 through 6 about Daniel, who was one of the most predictable people in the entire Bible. If you look at Daniel 6, you see that the satraps and the governors, the only way that they could trick and get Daniel in trouble was to create a law that went against the law of God because they could predict and they knew that if they could get a law in place that went against God's law, that Daniel would break the human law in favor of God's law and then he would be in trouble. Paul was also predictable. He went to the synagogues. He went to the marketplace. He went and shared Jesus with everyone. As Christians, people should know that we are going to predictably and boldly and courageously follow Jesus whatever the cost, that we're going to follow Jesus and do what he commands us to do and tells us to do. Let's be predictable. Second, we need to be informed. We can't just close our eyes, bury our heads in the sand and pretend like nothing is going on around us and then wake up one day and be shocked. We need to carefully watch. We need to observe. We need to know what people think and why so that we can speak in an intelligent manner into what they are facing and what they are doing so that like Paul in the marketplace in Thessalonica and in Athens, like we can go into that and we can quote our modern-day prophets and we can use that thread to point to the truth of the Scripture, that Jesus died for our sins and that he loves us and that we can be freed from our sins by accepting the grace that he has offered to us. Third... We need to pray for opportunities. I think a lot of times we don't see the opportunities that are available to us because this is for me too, and especially me, I don't pray as often as I should for opportunities to share the gospel. And I think that has a direct correlation on how much or how little I actually share the gospel. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Listen to this. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. If the Apostle Paul sends a letter to a church and asks them to pray for him to have boldness to share the gospel, then so should I. And so I ask you, pray for me that I would have boldness to share the gospel as I should and pray for one another and pray for yourselves. Let's pray for opportunities. And then with all of those opportunities, let's proclaim the gospel with our words and our actions. It cannot be just one or the other. It is always both. We speak the truth of the gospel in accordance with the scriptures and we show it in all of the things that we do. I encourage you today. As followers of Christ, we are examples of Him. We reflect Him to everyone around us. Our words matter, our actions matter, it all matters. We're on the doorstep of not just a new year, but a new decade. And I, for one, am really excited about it because I think God is going to do amazing things, not just in the next year, but in the next 10 years. It's an honor to be a part of it. I can't wait to see what he does through you and through me and through our church, wherever he takes us and whatever he does through us. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward now and and ask that you join me in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this gospel and for the example that Paul sets for us. Lord, I pray that this is a message that we would take with us everywhere, that we would reason that we would proclaim, that we would give evidence and testimony, that people would see you in us always. And Lord, even as, we, as I share this and talk about this, I know that a lot of us have followed you for a really long time. But God, I pray too I pray for anyone here today who does not know you, that this message and the truth of your word would strike a chord in their hearts, that they would put their faith and their trust in you, that they would be made new, be given new life, and that they too would proclaim your message. So I ask you now as you sit here with us, as we close today, if I want to invite you, if you have never trusted Jesus to forgive you of your sins, or maybe this is making sense for the first time, and you want to show that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted this message, then would you please just right nobody's looking around. Would you please raise your hand? I want to celebrate with you. I want to rejoice new life that God has given you. Okay. Father, I thank you for all of those who follow you and those who do not. Lord, I pray that those who don't know you would come to know you. And that all of us, as we follow you, would live for you. God, let this be an amazing decade full of new life. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anything that you would like to pray about, we have an amazing prayer team at the church. I would invite you to come forward and pray with our prayer team. And if not, Happy New Year. Thank you for being with us this morning. Love you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're dismissed.